welcome to another episode of Global Folks, a monthly podcast where we share stories and insights from authentic voices on one country per episode. I'm your hostess, Francesca Gortsunian, and today we will be talking about Algeria. Personally, very excited for this episode as I am an avid Algeria watcher, but I won't make it about me, I promise. So if you recall, we spoke briefly of the demonstrations plaguing the country since February 2019 in our podlet back in May. In today's episode, though, we're going to go into much more detail about Algeria's history, its road to independence, dealing with the Black Decade, you'll find out more about what that means in a bit, and most recently, the 20, I think we're at 22 or 23 weeks of protests that have led to the stepping down of longtime ruler Abdelaziz Bouteflika. Joining us on this episode, we have two fantastic guests who I had the honor of interviewing. We're going to talk to them a bit more about Algeria's history, what events have paved the way for its current political transition, and ultimately what the future could hold for this North African country. Joining us today, we first have Sami Boukela, who's the founding member and president of Algeria's first think tank called Le Cercle d'Action et de Réflexion Autour de l'Entreprise, or CARE. And second, we have Dalia Ganem a resident scholar at the Carnegie Middle East Center based in Beirut and the co-director for gender-related work for their program on civil-military relations in Arab states. So first, I want to give you a bit of background on Algeria, recognizing that not everyone is familiar with the country. For those of you who don't know, this country is actually the largest in Africa and the world's largest Arab country. Algeria is bordered to the northeast by Tunisia, to the east by Libya, to the west by Morocco, to the southwest by Western Sahara, Mauritania, and Mali, and to the southeast by Niger. I mention all of these countries as Algeria's geographic location makes it a very important player for regional stability as a whole, especially as it relates to migration flows and terrorism. This is something that we're going to get to a little bit later with both of our guests. Algeria was under French colonial rule for 132 years after a war of independence, which lasted from 1954 to 1962. It also faced a violent civil war from 1991 to 2002, and that period was known as the Black Decade, known for its violent repression of Algerian Islamists and heavy use of torture. These years of violence really remain ingrained in Algerian collective conscience today. To discuss all of this is our first guest, Semi. I guess to get us started, if you could just tell us a bit more about Algeria's history in general. I mean, there's a long history to it. And as we know, anyone who's researched the country, colonization has played a very important role in shaping Algeria today. But could you go a bit more into detail about how that history has influenced the country specifically related to like the French colonization era, the Black Decade? And thereafter. Okay, if we don't go back farther, 7,000 years ago, the first Berber, which is the first chapter of the book uh, I've been editing at uh, TLN, uh, which is uh, Algeria and Transatlantic Relations, and I uh, encourage you to have a look at it. It's on Barnes and Nobles and Amazon. It does really re- narrate about the history of Algeria, a nation that has been built by layers of uh, invasions. We could go really far talking about the ethnicities and the diversity of Algeria. And in fact, Algeria was uh, a nation which really was created by the French, and it was the French colonization that uh, defined the borders that we know today. Of course, uh, all the colonization process and decolonization process uh, influence a lot on the 
identity, the character, and the DNA of Algeria. But Algeria is, a, is, a, is really a melting pot of uh, a lot of ethnicities. And so whenever there's mention of you know ethnic diversity in any given country, I always think, how is that represented politically at the government level? Um, and so that's something that I'm curious about in this instance. <laughs> in Algeria, well, what can I tell you? There's no clear-cut differences or representation of these ethnicities within the government. In Algeria, you would probably see more of a regional representations more than ethnicity, because basically speaking, you would find Berbers in the northeast and in the southwest, and you would see of uh, Arab ethnicity also. So it's it's uh, such a big uh, mixture, basically. Uh, when you, you want to represent that into the government, you you don't really see it. Uh, it's not really clear. Uh, but what is clear is that, uh, for example, the previous president, most of his entourage came from the, the region he came from. So you see it that way. You see it in terms of region. You don't see it really in terms of uh, ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of... The former president, um, when thinking of from a political perspective, obviously his political party, the FN, was very prevalent as well. And was would you say that there was, with this melting pot idea that you're mentioning, like was there integration of these different ethnicities within each political party? Like was there representation? How how did that present itself? Yeah. Well, when we go through the political arena. Uh, if we talk about the FLN, initially the FLN was the unique party of the country after the independence, and therefore it was uh, with different streams of ethnicity within it, of course. But the prevalent idea or ideology was, of course, the one that was set in terms of tone by the leadership uh, at that time uh, after independence, uh, and that was more of a socialist doctrine. Um, and there was no really clear-cut uh, uh, evidence of uh, ethnicity uh, differences, and all of this, or even the thought of it, was totally banned because they saw in it the seeds of division. Right. So I'm curious, you mentioned the fact that the FLN was the only party post-independence. Mm-hmm. So I guess my first question for you was, how was the party able to consolidate its power and maintain its position as the most prevalent party on the political scene in Algeria? Well, it did so because the revolution against the French colony in Algeria was a revolution by the people. Uh, the people were totally invested in the revolution Women used to give up their gold and their bracelet to finance the FLN and the revolution. So it was really a national um, aspiration. The FLN could only be the only strong party of the nation because he was the party of the people. And and it was the party of the independence. After the independence, uh, what, in my opinion, should have been done is that the party of the revolution should have been Uh, stowed into a museum (laughs) and then uh, let the political sensitivity express themselves with different parties and run a full democracy. But we didn't go through a full democracy because we went through more of a socialist single party 
systems like used to be the USSR and like used to be uh, Russia with its uh, political party. And that's only fair because what other choice would, would, have, would have Algeria had? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they had to fight the French. The French were on the Western Bloc, uh, the so-called democracy. There was no democracy in Algeria with the French. The Algerians were second-class citizens. They were slaughtered, they were uh, expropriated, and so on and so forth. So the only outcome was at the independence. Well, I'm not going with that block. I'm going with the other one. That block, you know, 130 years of spoiling my nation and and stealing my resources and and slaughtering my people. I cannot go with them. Of course. So that, that was the only outcome. But of course, with time, and especially when you integrate the economical dimension of a nation's evolution... Uh, the fact that we saw the fall of the of the Berlin Wall and the, and the, and the, and the, and the bankruptcy of the socialist model, it was only natural for the country to shift towards a, a more free economy and open up the country to private enterprise and uh, and investment, uh, which is which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. How has the economy basically shaped what is going on in Algeria today? The unrest, the political unrest, was really the outcome of the misuse of the resources and their allocation. The Bouteflika era and uh, their team uh, went into this kind of, uh, you know, collusion, bigotry, and privilege to uh, to a few. Where they failed is not the fact of giving privilege to their close one. They failed because they didn't know how to let go and let uh, the wealth trickle down to each and everyone. So they imagined that by building three million houses and giving a house to every Algerian, this will solve the problem. They thought that by giving access to credit to buy buy a car to Algerians, this will solve the problem. They imagined that by redistributing the rent through subsidies, that was that will solve the problem, that's, and that that's where they were wrong. That just makes people more dependent. Exactly, then. they make them more dependent. Mm-hmm. They make them lazy. They make them feeling that they have no control of their life, and they are just waiting for the rent to be redistributed. And when there is no more rent. Then everybody gets mad and nothing works and you get this outburst. So that's really what happened. But instead, they should have taught to the Algerian how to work, how to start his business, how to accumulate wealth out of work and honest work and not go into that path of redistributing wealth, redistributing perks, redistributing privileges that it, that really fed corruption from the small clerk uh, that opens the door at any administration all the way to the presidency. That was a big mistake. And that's what triggered the actual situation because people got fed up of that. And when I say people, I'm talking about the youngsters. They're our kids. You know, they're 20, 25. They see no future in this nation because they see they can't, they can't have any perspective they can start their business they can you know plan a life a normal life build a family you know so the big missing element 
was what we called in French la meritocratie, the merit society, that we don't have a merit society. And this way goes back to many years ago. Uh, I could say even it goes back to the revolution. The system was corrupted, was corrupted from the get-go. So where are we today in these events? We're at week 22 or 23 of protests. You have the president who stepped down. Uh, previously scheduled presidential elections were postponed. What's going on now and what's coming down the pike in your opinion? <laughs> well, I have no crystal ball, but what I can tell you is that we are in a standoff situation right now. We are in a standoff situation because we have the population's demonstration, which is now going to be running for the last six months. Thanks God it's happening peacefully. It has been a peaceful demonstration, demonstration that showed the civility of Algerian, um, that showed really the world that uh, a nation and people can ask for what they aspire for through their leaders, by through pacific means, and, and that was really admirable. The strong national identity of Algeria has been built up and reinforced. The Algerian got bonded together. There was no show of any division in terms of ethnicity, in terms of religious practice or non-practice, in terms of girls or boys, in terms of hijab or no hijab. All Algerians are just bounded as one people. And I believe that the Algerian people have a great resilience and are sometimes quite uh, surprising. And I believe there will be surprises uh, out of this, uh, and hopefully some good surprises, like uh, our national team did surprise us with the African Cup. That was an exciting win. Yeah. Yes, and that was just to demonstrate that all Algerians can really be one nation, one bonded people uh, that can really achieve great things if only the right conditions are set and if only no one comes uh, trying to hinder uh, such aspiration. And uh, now what's going to go down the road? Uh, there is three possible scenarios. The first one would be that a next president is elected and somehow also uh, supported by the actual establishment, what remains of it, that is probably the military and, uh, and some people in the government. And that would be a young figure, maybe acceptable to the population, but that would be what I call the, the mixed, uh, the mixed uh, solution. Mm -hmm. uh, the second scenario, and I hope this will never happen, is the scenario where things slides into violence that would ha could happen with any accident. Uh, a policeman that gets carried away and that kills a demonstrator or... You know, any accident can happen that could be uh, dramatic. The third possible is the one that maybe is of the aspiration of the people, and that's to say that, well, uh, the military and the government decide to uh, leave the, the NGOs and the population and the political parties organize themselves uh, in order 
to draft maybe a new constitution and to define new institutions and to define a new uh, modus operandi of the nation. But this is a, a long-haul process. It's a risky process because it doesn't call for order and it can go either way. So these are the three scenarios, but it could happen. It could happen, but it needs a very strong leadership within the, within the population, representatives that are acceptable to everyone. And the issue now that any leader that will come out of the Iraq is systematically destroyed by another party, so there is no leadership, and that's what makes it challenging and a risky situation. So there is some middle ground to be found, uh, maybe, uh, have some kind of roadmap, either be the actual constitution or, or an acceptable roadmap on, of, on all party. But to stick to a roadmap that brings order into the nation, because order is the only way to go out successfully into a, a new republic. If we go through, through chaos, that's, that's not going to happen. So speaking of roadmap, if I'm not mistaken, the interim president has called for these national dialogues to take place with the intention of developing a roadmap forward for Algeria. Can you tell me a bit more about that? How how are those dialogues going? Who are the key players there and what is what are their interests? Well, frankly speaking, this initiative was welcomed by some of the some of the people, not all of them. Uh, some of it saw it more like the scenario number one preparation that I was uh, hinting about. And this scenario for some extreme position in this revolution are totally against. Mm-hmm. Can you say why? Like why? What's the position? Like what is the for and what is the against? What are people's hesitancies? You know, some people want nothing to do with the old system because they see in the old system and their representative t- till today, they see in it the seeds of corruption, of um, not giving to the people the voice and the power as it was as it is stated in the constitution. They really want to see new faces, new people, people that had to do nothing with politics or politics of the old regime and the old system. People who have studied, who have expertise in any field, but who could bring something positive to the nation, that would, could bring something to build the nation. So these are the people on the extreme. They say that we don't want all this. You know, and that's, that's the famous uh, slogan of this young demonstrator, uh, which is, it means they get all removed. But uh, the other thing is that this expression, they get all removed because all are corrupted. And if you go and analyze, everybody's corrupted. Even that same guy who said they get all removed. The clerk at the, at the, at the gate of the institution is corrupted. Everybody's corrupted somehow. Uh, uh, within the system. So you cannot get rid of everybody. You cannot get rid of all the institutions because getting rid of everything is chaos. You will not build a nation out of chaos. So there is a transition to be engineered 
in order to go from existing institution that needs to mutate. And that's the only way. So I trust that there will be some middle ground that will be found because people are going to get wiser and they're going to see that this standoff is going to be damageable to the nation. We are seeing the economical situation getting worse by the day. And that means the livelihood of people is going to get worse by the day. So there is a solution to be found immediately so that reforms can kick in and the life of people get better because of investment, because of growth, because of diversification, because of and so on. But leaving the situation as it is, it's going to be fully damageable for the whole nation. Sammy, one of my questions related to all of this is the role of the military in this transition um, and just in general the internal and external forces that have an impact on current events in Algeria? I think the military is uh, concerned about security, it's concerned about stability, it's concerned about territorial integrity. This is their main uh, motto. Okay, now there might be within the military some people who are also concerned about their position, concerned about their privileges. And that's only that's only fair, that's natural. Let's say human beings like this. So but I don't believe the military seeks to become active on the political scene. And I think that the chief Yeah, I don't think so, because the chief of I mean the chief of staff reiterated many times he has no political ambition. He's a guy of 80 years old, and even the second guard, which is behind him, you know, they, they have been groomed as professional military guys. Uh, and I don't think they're looking for uh, any uh, political aspiration. Uh, their sole concern is that the nation remains stable into a very unstable environment on, in that region. And they're making everything possible for that to remain. And the fact that seeing this revolution and these potential seeds of scission within the nation, that's frightened them and sometimes pushed them into action which are reprehensible and which are not, not accepted by the people, like having some people being jailed for only for their opinion. But we have to find a middle ground because even if they don't want chaos, they, we can work towards going a full transition of this republic into a second republic where we truly have uh, you know separation of power of the executive the legislative the judiciary uh, because something which has been lacking in the in the nation uh, having this concentration of power within one man this is not the solution uh, the running a nation as I told you is the work and is the job of groups of people and separation of power and checks and balances. It's a very important country for the region. It's a country which is, has a lot of depth in terms of the population, natural resources, and, and Algeria failing, it would be a catastrophe for the whole region, all the Mediterranean. Uh, so we, we needed to be there big and solid and uh, build, uh, you know, bridge up with the neighbors and spur growth and prosperity in the region so that we can have population that get fixed into their nations. They don't aspire to go to, to any others because they have a, 
a future for their for for themselves and their kids, uh, and they have some aspirations. Sami, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and your Thank insight. You so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack from that conversation with Sami. I think one of the first things to note is this idea of a multi-party system in Algeria is actually fairly nascent. And I would argue that the lack of political organization that often comes and grows with having a multi-party system has translated into what we see today with the protest movement. If you look at this movement, there is no clear leader. There is no clear vision of what's next other than the complete and unquestionable removal of every single member of the regime who was affiliated with Bouteflika. And that's something that I discussed further in the second interview with Dahlia. To get us started, I just wanted to know if you could tell us a bit more about how Algeria's more recent history has influenced where the country is today. I'm thinking specifically of the civil war and the black decade in the 90s. The black decade had uh, an impact on uh, nurturing and maturing the political maturity of Algerians. You know, as people who have lived through 10 years of civil war from 1991 to 2001, with more than 150,000 deaths, 7,000 disappeared, um, some 20 billion dollars of material damage and you know all the psychological damage Algerians were very cognizant when they took up to the street uh, about the danger of uh, violence and I remember when I uh, had the chance to march with the student on February 26 in the University of Ben Aknoun, which is one of the biggest universities in Algiers they were very young, they were 21, 22 years old and yet the memory of the black decade was still there. They were saying, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. We don't want to have violence. We don't want the cycle of violence to come back again. So we are taken up to the street because we are angry and we want our rights as civilians to be recognized. However, we are not going to pay a hefty price for it because we've already done it in the 90s. So in a nutshell, I would say that the civil war had an impact on uh, the political maturity of Algerians in general. No, that's that's really interesting. And just from a more general perspective, speaking of political maturity, can you give us an overview of the political context in Algeria prior to this most recent revolution. I'm thinking particularly the FLN's consolidation of power and the state of the political opposition prior to 2019. Yes, President Bouteflika has been in power uh, prior to uh, him stepping down for uh, 20 years uh, in office. So basically, he has been seen as the architect of power, the one who put an end to the civil war with the demobilization and the rehabilitation of thousands of former jihadists who participated during the Black Decade. And uh, he has always been seen also as somebody who was able to bring back Algeria to the international arena in the sense that uh, 
for during the 10 years of the civil uh, war, Algeria was internationally not present, if I may say. But Good Flika brought it back to uh, the international scene and so on and so forth. Uh, however, despite him being uh, very, very sick, he decided to run for a fifth term. And this is actually was the catalyst of anger because well, Algeria is a very young country. 55% of the population is under age 25. So it was for Algerians, it was an insult. Such a young country run by, by uh, such an old uh, man um, and the sick man was the insult that they couldn't uh, take anymore. So they decided to take up to the street. But again, behind Bouteflika, there is an entire system, a complex system of powers in Algeria. Uh, the absurdity of President Bouteflika to present himself for a fifth term is to be understood within the nature, the very opaque, very dark and very complex nature of the Algerian regime. This is how we can understand. It. So behind, you know, the man, there is different circles of powers. Of course, the first circle is composed by the military who haven't been governing, but they've been ruling the country uh, since the independence of Algeria in 1962. The second circle is composed by the FLN Aparachik, meaning the ruling uh, party, the National Liberation Front. And the third party is composed by several people, business that are connected with the military and with the bureaucracy. And all these circles have different interests, but they all have one common thing, that is the protection of their interests. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Algerians are very mindful of the complexity of the Algerian regime, the role of the military, and so on and so forth. And they've been, they've been silent about it. But the decision to run for a fifth term was the catalyst of anger. So civil society stepped in, and uh, this is how the movement was born. That's one of the things that I noticed about this m movement in general, is the lack of leadership. And I'm not saying that's a bad yes. thing, but there's been no one man or woman who has presented themselves as leading this opposition yes. movement. Uh, it is a choice, actually, uh, by the popular movement. At the beginning, and I was lucky to be there to stay for several, uh, you know, protests and participate myself as a citizen, people were very adamant, and they keep being so, about their desire not to have a leader, which is a positive point, uh, in a way, in the sense that, you know, they do know how the regime is capable to co-opt the leadership. Uh, this is what happened in the in 2001. In when there was in Algeria big riots in the region of Kabylia, which is the Berber hinterland, uh, once the popular movement structured itself and had uh, a leadership, the regime was able to co-opt it. Uh, so Algerians in 2019, they had this experience in mind. We don't want any kind of leadership because we do not want uh, to take a chance to put in jeopardy the, the strength of this popular movement. But again, this is a strength, but this is also a weak point. It is a weak point in the sense that today they need a minimum of structure because social movements tend to fade away with time. Mm. 
And the second thing is this is used by the regime. And I think um, Gayed Saleh, who is the vice minister of defense and chief of staff of the army, said, well, I want to negotiate. We want to negotiate, but we can't negotiate with 41 millions of Algerians. So give us leadership to talk to and then we will negotiate. Mm -hmm. So this is also a weakness. And today after I think we are entering our 21st week of popular peaceful civic uh, protest, I feel that we are reaching uh, a dead end. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned um, Gaid Salah. Who are the other key players in this transition? Well, in this transition, we have to talk first first about the military. You know, behind Gaid Saleh, there is the military institution. We are talking about a very strong, powerful institution. It is the most organized institution in Algeria. Uh, the army is also the second biggest and most powerful army in the region after the Egyptian one. It is an army that has a very important political role uh, for historical reasons first. Uh, let us remember here that it is this army uh, under another name that actually uh, fought against the French in the 50s and 60s. It liberated the country in 1962. It is also the same army that played an important role in the socio-economic development of Algeria in the 70s. It is the same army that uh, fought, you know, public unrest in the 80s, and it is the same army that uh, fought terrorism and jihadism in Algeria and the Black Decade in the 90s. As such, the military developed a messianic vision of itself. It sees itself as really being the custodian of Algeria and of the Algerian people. And so, for it, it is impossible to conceive, it is inconceivable for the Algerian military to be neutral when it comes to politics. Now, uh, its role is also the, the, the factors behind military interventionism in politics in Algeria had also to be uh, found in uh, structural and, and institutional uh, uh, factors. As I said it before, um, this is one of the biggest military in the region. As such, it has a very important budget. Mm -hmm. uh, so the military are very eager to keep their institutional interest. So this is why, and I wrote it in my latest piece, I said to renegotiate civil-military relations in Algeria, both the people and the military need to agree that there is some domains that the military will keep. Here I'm talking about the budget and about human rights violation. When Bouteflika came in power in 1999, he cut a deal with the military. You go back to your barracks, you give the civilian uh, facade more power, and we make sure that there will be no legal actions against the human rights violation that happened during the Black Decade. Mm -hmm. And Bouteflika came up with the Charter of Peace and National Re Reconciliation that actually exonerated all uh, military and um, members 
member of the security forces from their violation of uh, human rights. Um, so the military is the, the, the biggest actor, I would say. Uh, the government, and this is how Algerians perceive it, is a puppet government. There is no credibility whatsoever that has been given to the president, uh, the interim president, Ben Saleh. As for the opposition, we said it, um, Algeria's opposition parties have lost all credibility as well and cannot mobilize society. We've seen it from the beginning of the popular movement when, for instance, the Islamists tried to surf on the wave they weren't capable of, when many other you know, political leaders, uh, historical ones, tried to, uh, to surf on the wave, also they weren't able to do so. Uh, it is totally decredibilized. So I would say the main actor right now is the military on the one hand. On the other hand, it is civil society and the people on the street. Can you tell me more about that political opposition that um, was trying to ride that wave but unable to do so? I'm just curious about where the political opposition has been up until now and since this revolution. Political leaders tried to surf on the way that they took up to the street and they were shouted at Shiatin, Shiatin, which means in Algerian, psychophant. Uh, you are the psychophant of the regime. So nobody really wanted them uh, there. Why? Because Algeria entered the multi-party system in 1989. And since then, all political parties, you know, they had a lack of commitment to democratic values. But the the, the, the most important shortcoming of opposition parties, and this is what Algerians think about them, is that they are focused on preserving their relationship with the regime rather than finding ways to advance the interests of society. They've been all trying, you know, to preserve their power and um, their activism has not been a struggle for democratization in Algeria or a better future for Algerians, but a way to gain access to ministerial portfolios, parliamentary seat, high position, and of course the distribution of rent through substantial salaries and other benefits. So this is how they are seen in Algeria, and this is why Algerians do not trust them. And actually, according to the 2018 Arab Barometer, and that was even before the protest, only 14% of Algerians believed in political parties. That's interesting because that's the trend globally as well. And this is why every parliamentary elections, you have a participation rate that is just catastrophic. The latest one in 2017, the parliamentary election, the participation rate was only 35%. I work on um, Tunisia and Algeria as well, and the municipal elections that just happened in 2018 were, I think there was 33 or 35% participation. And yeah. It's, yeah, again, it's a trend that we've noticed um, globally. Yes. What exists today in Algeria is no longer the single party system like it used to be before 1989, but rather a multi-party system made up of parties that behave as if they were functioning in one party system. Because opposition parties are incapable today in Algeria of developing nationwide agendas that can bridge the geographic, ethnic, linguistic fracture that continues to divide Algerian society. But since the mobilization, all these divides have been actually bridged by the people themselves. So the people are asking themselves, if we did that and we did it alone, why can, what can you bring us? Basically nothing. So we don't want you because we can't trust you.
So I guess my next question is, what's next? So we have Bouteflika who stepped down. The protesters are still on the streets demanding change. So what is next for Algeria? We don't know. We're talking about two sides, the military on one side and the people on one side. So if I take the side of the, the people, I would say the only way forward right now is to have a minimum of institutionalization of this popular movement. We need to have some figures, national figures composed by unionists, by students, by lawyers, by civilians, by citizens who can actually put a roadmap and be able to negotiate with the government. But to do so, the only way forward is for the current government to resign. Algerians want a, a longer and more extended transition, and they do not want to organize election right away. Presidential elections have been already uh, cancelled twice, and the military are adamant about organizing these elections. This decision has been very unpopular, and people are right, because the actual condition in Algeria do not allow for a fair and transparent presidential election. 75% of Algerians believe that the military is the most trustworthy institution in Algeria. But this is going to diminish if the military continue to openly rule and if they don't go back to their barracks. So the reputation of the army is at, uh, at risk. The second thing that is at risk that is uh, bigger is the cohesion of the army. Algerian army is not an elitist or an elite army. It is an army composed by the people, meaning uh, conscription is universal and mandatory in Algeria. So if the leadership decides, for instance, to take very unpopular measures, such as, for instance, deploying coercive measures, this will create divisions within the army, and I am not sure if the soldiers and the low-ranked and middle-ranked uh, people in the military will accept to shoot uh, at the crowd. So it is putting at risk its cohesion, and when the cohesion of a military is risked, then the military institution cannot perpetrate its first mission, which is the protection of the country. Let's take a step back. Looking more regionally and globally, what is Algeria's role on a global scale and why is a stable Algeria so important? So if we need only to talk about Europe, not to mention, you know, the other Maghreb uh, country, if Algeria enters uh, a difficult period, meaning a period of political and economic destabilization, Europe will witness a destabilization of its southern flanks and its security put at risk. Let us remember what happened when Muammar al-Qaddafi in Libya uh, fell and what happened with the migration crisis and with the Mushra of uh, jihadist groups in uh, Libya and how this impacted uh, Europe. So um, in addition, you know, Algeria is seen by many European leaders and many European capitals as a ramper against irregular migration, a peace broker and a crucial energy supplier. Uh, these three factors shaped the relationship with the European countries and it is likely that this will continue to do so. Algeria became since 9-11 an important regional partner for the EU but also for the US. So of course it plays a very important role in the Sahel as well. 
In addition, there is, of course, the question of irregular migration. Mm -hmm. uh, with the situation in Libya and the Sahel worsening, uh, more refugees have been trying to reach Europe. And, uh, of course, at this stage, it is very hard to make any prediction. But it is also safe to say that if the situation worsens in Algeria, legal and illegal or illegal migration will always remain an alternative for many Algerians. The best way for Europe and neighboring countries is to uphold a benevolent strategy and adhere to the will of the majority of Algerians people. Clearly, there is a lot at stake for Algeria in the coming months. And I know a lot of people will be watching this very intently to see how things progress and unfold. Given everything going on, in your opinion, what are the top three takeaways from what's been happening in Algeria since February? The first takeaway is we need to remember and to pay tribute to these people who have been taken up to the street for four months in a, such a peaceful and civic way. Algerians gave a beautiful lesson of peace and civism uh, to their neighbors, but also to European countries. Uh, something that was very striking, you know, when I was in Algiers was the people telling me, well, you know what, we wanted to remain peaceful and we are doing our best to organize ourselves in order for the demonstration to remain peaceful because we don't want to be seen like the yellow vests. From the other side of the Mediterranean, the yellow vest in France, in Paris, were breaking and burning, you know, cars every Sunday. And you had these uh, people who were taken uh, up to the street in a very peaceful and civic way. It was so peaceful that women brought their babies with them and there was such a such a, an atmosphere it was almost a carnival so this is the first takeaway things can change peacefully and actually of course we need to remain you know very optimistic there was some tangible uh, results from this peaceful uh, protest at the end of the day president Bouteflika, you know stepped down um, the military of course took few actions you know, to calm uh, the protester and things have been moving slowly, but still they have been moving. The second thing, which is less optimistic, maybe it's the role of the military. It is very important to keep in mind that right now the system is um, reshaping itself and uh, civil military relationships are going, uh, are being played. We don't know how they will transform or no, but one thing remains sure, the civil-military relationships in Algeria right now are changing. And the third take where I would say the civil war, uh, despite, you know, its ugliness and so on and so forth, had uh, this positive impact on Algerians. Because today it brought people, even as young as 20, 21 years old, up to the street with this political maturity. They are politically savvy. They know what to do. And also one of the takes away is uh, how technology has been used in Algeria. In the 90s, this wouldn't have been possible because there was no internet and Algeria was leaving this war a week low, if I may say. Today, this is no longer possible. Today, we have people who are, you know, um, using Facebook and Twitter and making videos and making statements and using all this technology to show to the world their peaceful demonstration, to show to the world what they call the smile revolution. And this is very important, I think. Dahlia, thank you so, so much. Super. 
you are most welcome. It was my pleasure. If you like what you heard, or if you didn't, but hopefully you did, please leave us a comment or a like or download or subscribe or share with your grandmother this episode and the rest of the episodes on Global Podcast. Until next time, I'm your hostess, Francesca Bertsunian. Have a great day.